I, I believe he began to come out and I could feel the pressure, which I'm thankful for. I could feel the contractions. And even then I knew in my head, I'm like, I shouldn't be pushing because I can feel when I actually have contractions and those feel like I need to be pushing. Yeah. But of course, they just coach you for hours and hours and hours on end to do something that your body is not prepared to do. And so I remember him starting to emerge and I just thought, I will never do this again. Like that's the thought that I was having was I will never do this again. And it was crushing for me. It was such a flood of emotions of, wow, this experience has absolutely crushed me. So you thought you would never give birth again? Was that like what, what was crushing you or you would never do it that way again? No, I will never give birth again. Yeah. I, I have like so many emotions coming up right now because I feel like so many women so many women go through the exact same thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like if that's what you have to subject yourself to mm-hmm. is the complete disrespect and disempowerment and just being stripped of all your humanity and dignity and really tortured. If that's what this is, if that's what birth is for me, then I will never do this again. Mm-hmm. Hello, beautiful soul. Emily Alexina here. Welcome back to the podcast. In this space, I like to dive in as I discover my own higher potential, cultivate it, uh, bring it to the world, and then protect and defend it. And in conversations with others, we discover their journeys of growth as well. I like to touch upon topics such as birth, mothering, homeschooling, natural healing, and many other things. Before we jump into today's episode, I'd like to invite you to take a moment to take two deep breaths. Feel your feet grounded in the earth and the top of your head reaching for the heavens. That's if you're standing. If you're lying down, feel yourself snuggling down into the surface and relaxing your shoulders. I feel like that's a nice gift to give myself and to anyone listening in. Oh, how have I been? Well, the past two mornings, I've woke up, woken up feeling like I was hit by a truck the night before with bags under my eyes, like they haven't, they haven't been this bad since um, my last baby was little. (laughs) Oh, we're in February Baby Theo is seven months old. Two nights ago, he was up every hour nursing, peeing. We had traveled, and I think with all the distractions and the excitement, he didn't nurse as much during the day, and so he made up for it at night, and that was rough. The night before, I also watched two consecutive episodes of Outlander, which was a bad decision. 
<laughs> I could have gone to sleep much earlier as Theo had slept through that whole time, of course. And I had sworn to myself at the end of the last series of the last season to never watch it again. And I forgot that oath over two year span of it not being on Netflix and, um, yeah, got into trouble again. So I might be, I'm thinking of doing a 30 day of no Netflix or no watching anything before bed instead doing meditation or creation. So this is kind of my mantra instead of ingestion, it's meditation or creation. Let me know how you like that. Um, so today we have Sandra Rear joining us on this episode, and I'm so excited to bring her on. She is a um, new relation, a new contact the past few months as I reach out to more radical birth workers in the Ontario area. Sandra is a nurse who has experience working in geriatrics and mental health. And in this episode, she speaks about how and why she left nursing during COVID, during the early days of COVID. This is very interesting. You guys are going to like it. <laughs> um, we talk about her births. Uh, yes, she did have a second birth after saying to herself she would never birth again. Yes, her first birth was traumatic and very difficult, and we talk about that in the episode. Uh, we talk about breech babies, uh, informed consent, and also the course that she is preparing to share and give to the world. Um, just after knowing her for the past few months, I can tell that she is someone who deeply cares about everybody well-being and that she is also committed to being in alignment with her truth and I, I love how strong she is in this and at the same time comes off so gentle and caring to, to people and to especially to the women that she serves and so let's jump into the episode. Enjoy. So, hi, Sandra. Welcome. Uh, today, I'd love to just jump into your story and the amazing work that you're doing right now, what offerings you have for women. Uh, so, I guess, start with a bit of your background. Where do you come from? Thank you, Emily, for having me today. I love to jump on these calls and just share and connect. Um, yeah, so my background is in nursing. So straight out of high school, I uh, immediately went into a nursing program. I got an RPN certificate um, or diploma, and I immediately started working mostly in um, geriatrics with the elderly in care homes. And I later went on to specialize a little bit more in mental health work. I was a behavioral support worker um, as a nurse for those in the nursing home that had behavioral um, 
concerns. So a little bit of mental health and a little bit of geriatrics. And I worked in the medical system for about five and a half years, almost six years. Um, And it was straining for sure but I felt like I was doing very purposeful work I felt like I was doing good in the world and I felt very important in the work that I was doing Um, and I definitely foresaw that that would be my career forever Hmm. going into it I thought that you know perhaps I would do added education to further myself as a nurse or specialize in something that I had a little bit more interest in I did have a big interest in the mental health work that I was doing, as well as palliative care. Um, and so I had this kind of vision of just expanding. I like to change things up a lot. I like to take on extra roles. I wasn't a very stagnant um, employee. I like to do extra education and change up what I was doing. And if there was new roles that were available, I would like to apply for them and step into them. And so I am somebody who likes to change up what they're doing frequently. It seems like at least this, at this point in my life, I've taken on a lot of different roles. Um, at one point, I did an extra foot care certification, which allowed me to work as a foot care nurse in the community. So I had opened up a foot care practice and I was serving people in the community for a few years as well. And that was my first, I think, step out of working for somebody and working for myself Mm -hmm. Um, of course still within a role that was slightly medical but really also more personal you're really just serving the person one-on-one and meeting their needs where they're at so I had my first baby in 2018 and um, when I was supposed to go back to work in 2019 I went back for a few months and it it just didn't align anymore. I really wanted to be home with my child. Um, and so I left. I went back to work for about a month after my mat leave was up and then I left. Um, I opened up a, a child care, a home child care facility within my own home so that I was able to be home with my kiddo and still bring in an income for our family. And then the pandemic hit in mm. March of 2020. And I felt called to go back to work. Um, it was a very scary time, I think, for most of us um, before, you know, I try to look back now it was truly scary. And I don't know, I think a lot of people that are on the other end of it now and sort of quickly saw through a lot of the things that weren't lining up and weren't making sense and that they started to not align with anymore. The mask mandates and the vax mandates and everything that kind of came later. I don't know about you, but I almost forget how truly scary it was at the beginning like it was scary nobody knew what was actually happening how dangerous things actually were um and so I did feel called to go back to work for a little while and so I think it was go back to work like for for money or because you wanted to help or why did you why did you go back to work yeah and I went back to work at the same place that I had been working at for the last five-ish years um it was a nursing home 
And I only went back for the sake of helping. I was making more money doing childcare. I had to close my childcare facility. I couldn't, um, I couldn't in confidence have small children at my home whilst also potentially being exposed to this unknown virus mm-hmm. out in the healthcare community. So I closed my doors to the childcare facility. Um, and I went back to work and I felt like it was just a duty that had to be called. I think at the time you were seeing a lot of, um, a lot of fear, especially around the nursing homes, you know, that when there is something um, endemic in the community that it often hits nursing homes first. And this was, this would have been before um, it really came over here and started like really impacting the homes where people were on lockdown in their rooms and, um, you know, people were dying in masses and workers were overrun and we had government employees going into nursing homes. This was just before that. It hadn't really come here yet. Everything was kind of over in Europe mm-hmm. and we were just watching from the news at this point. <clears throat> so I went back for about two months and within that time, I... I recognized just how broken and destructive the system can be. Um, I think I, I always teetered on that edge of like, yeah, it's not, it's not great. It could be better. We know it's broken, but we're needed. We're needed here anyways. Someone's got to do the work. I may as well try my best. You know, I can be the light in the dark tunnel and, just keep on going with your nurse hat on. Um, and I, I remember very, very well that I was told that I wasn't allowed to wear PPE. I wasn't allowed to wear personal protective equipment while at work. I began wearing a mask along with a few other seasoned nurses. We all started masking up for the entire shift which was not at all normal. Usually we, we would only have personal protective equipment on if we were dealing with something infectious or we had a flu going around. Um, I mean, now now it's just mainstream, right? Everywhere in healthcare, you automatically wear a mask, but that's not how things were. Hmm. And so we were told that we weren't allowed to wear masks because we were inducing fear for the residents and for the other staff. Really? Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. it was shocking. I was I was really taken aback, and and this actually came from a higher up that was a, a really good friend of mine at the time. She had stepped into a director position at the at the home, so I also had a personal relationship with her as well. It wasn't just a work relationship, and I was kind of like, "Are you, are you, are you serious? Like, is this coming from a place of intrinsically aligning with that, or are you just being told?" from the top down what to tell people because I don't understand like it's not based in your science it's not based in logic um so where is it coming from and and around the same time the rhetoric of the lack of personal protective equipment that was available to staff came up Mm. So around the same time, we were starting to hear about PPE shortages across across Ontario um, and how the hospitals and, and homes were starting to reuse PPE and try to clean their PPE, even though it was, was single-use items. Um, 
And so it was the moments like these that I was told that I wasn't allowed to protect myself, that, you know, you were told that you were only allowed to have one mask for an entire shift if you wanted to wear one. Um, you know, all of this completely went against everything that you had learned previously. In all your education, and all your years of working, this was the diametrical opposite. So now we're being told, it's like, and it's, so where does that come from? It's coming from government it's coming from municipalities you know they're making these rules for you someone who's never actually worked on a floor someone with no medical training whatsoever is now telling people what they can and can't do with their safety and so it was like this light bulb moment of oh like my managers aren't going to step up for us no one's taking care of us you know we are the ones literally on the front lines and nobody cares they would rather you show up to work with either no mask or a dirty, filthy mask and confront this thing that we really didn't know much about at the time. So that's Um, interesting because like, personally, I don't think masks do very much, especially out in the public. And I hated being forced to wear one. Um, But in the early days, they were actually not to wear one because they recognize the psychological effects that that could have on people. That's right. And then later it's like, they just put all masks on children, on teachers and the schools, you know, everywhere without at all acknowledging the psychological effect that that could have on, on all of those people, especially the kids. Absolutely. And, and even more so, denying the fact that there could be Mm. any psychological effects on the people wearing them or those around we were literally told we could not wear them because we were inciting fear (laughs) and fast forward six months they're mandated in healthcare facilities a few months later they're mandated across the country across ontario with no talk about this psychological with no talk of it yeah so at first, yeah. when, when that first came up, you initially, you just wanted to protect yourself while you were at work to not bring anything back to your kids, um, which makes sense. And then they said, you know, don't wear the mask or wear a dirty mask. And that was a light bulb moment. It's just, it's funny to me that it's like, it's like an opposite of like how we would be thinking now, but it makes sense. It was a light bulb moment at the time. It's like, it's like the catch 22, you know, it's like nothing makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, and that's exactly, exactly okay. it. Like, in those early days, nobody knew what we were dealing with. Was this going to sweep across Canada and actually wipe out half the population? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the statistics told us they would. Well, it mm-hmm. all seemed a little far-fetched, maybe pretty early on, but you still didn't quite know until the data started coming in that you could actually deep dive in right. on your own. And it, it all became fairly apparent after that but those early months were a really gray zone and so it did make sense that we would wear protective equipment for ourselves until you know any differently right yeah that's interesting my my husband is uh he's actually from like soviet russia and so he when it, it all started happening he was like well, crazy things have happened before. This is probably blown out of proportion. And he he was just like not worried at all. So I was actually pretty chill because of his influence. Um, 
And I think that without that perspective and, and like his parents had gone through so much with, you know, lack of food and here people were panicking about, you know, food shortages and I guess toilet paper shortages. So it's just interesting how everyone really navigated that differently. And also you being in the medical world and working with the elderly, um, I could totally see that there would be, you know, much more concern. Yeah. I think at that time as well, I was still, I was still really like into, you know, the way things are supposed to be done, the way that you're taught. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can look back, I look back at my education and I remember learning about, briefly learning about, um, I guess it would be epidemiology and, you know, learning about the differences between an endemic um, illness and a pandemic illness. And, you know, the word pandemic held like a lot of weight when mm. we were learning about it, right? Like that's a really scary thing. You think pandemic and you think, um, you know, major flus that have wiped out droves of people mm. um, and just destroyed families and, and nations and, and I remember being at home. I can't remember if we were already on lockdowns or not. I don't think so. But watching the news, which is something I never do now. <laughs> but watching the news and hearing the word pandemic for the first time. Hmm. And I was shocked. Like, I think my husband, too, was on the other end of, like, not really understanding what that word meant hmm. as much. But anyone in the medical field who had been taught a certain way to view that word as a really like cataclysmic thing yeah, um, was probably on their heels. Like, Oh my goodness, is this actually happening? It felt very surreal. Um, and so, yeah. So I think a lot of us were just on guard. Like, yeah, we're the ones out here that are doing it. So I actually only stayed working for about two months the mask thing, the inability to protect myself in the way that I wanted to, yeah. and just the 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 backhandedness, you know, the the two face of well, this is our best practice, and we're going to stick to it, but also you're not allowed to do the best practice. So if if you're allowed to operate like that, with people's lives on the line, potentially our lives, the residents' lives, then how can I? how can I work for somebody? How can I work in a system that's, that's so able to flip flop depending on the story that you're being given from our governments? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not based in science. That's not based in science. What you're telling me that's not based in common sense. So how do I continue working for something like that? So I did leave again did they acknowledge it? Like, did any of your superiors say, you know, yeah, we understand this doesn't make sense or, you know, say that they were trying to fight it in any way or were they, did they just kind of go, go with it? No, I, um, I was told one day on the floor that I wasn't allowed to wear it. And I said that I will continue to wear it. Um, and if you are going to force me to show up to work without personal protective equipment, I won't be showing up for my consecutive shifts. Um, and a few other nurses also stood their ground on that. And those other nurses that were also standing their ground on it were much more seasoned than me. I want to say like 20, 25 years mm -hmm. plus of, right? They're well into their 50s and 60s. Um, 
And they had also, you know, seen they were there for um, SARS, right? They were around for that. And so they saw how the healthcare system can crumble given these same circumstances that seem to be happening again. Um, And so I'm like, I'm going to side with these ladies. Like, somebody listen to these women over here, Hmm. you know, who should be respected for the information that they're giving us and the, the information that they hold, like clearly they're doing this out of, out of good reason. So um, I feel like they got a lot less pushback than I did. But when I actually confronted the, the director of care, who was also, like I said, a, a friend of mine at the time, um, I tried to arrange, or she actually tried to arrange a meeting first. She said, come down to my office after work, whatever, we'll talk about it. Um, well, that meeting never happened. And anytime I tried to talk about it again, she was unavailable. Um, so I just continued wearing my mask. I got people telling me that I shouldn't. My managers reminded me that I shouldn't. And I said, then I will go home. That is fine with me. Um, and I was never pushed to that point of having to leave shift. And um, yeah, it was never addressed. It was never told us, you know, why, what, where is that coming from exactly? It was very shortly after, though that the mask shortage thing came up. Mm-hmm. I was, I think I was just on the tail end of leaving when that came up. And <clears throat> we, we were allocated one mask if you want to wear one for your entire shift. And so some of the PSWs did start getting on board with that after some time. And, you know, and they were looking to us. I, <laughs> I remember standing around the nursing station. Um, there would be new one usually charge RN two PMs that work the full between eight and twelve PSWs on the floor at a time, depending on the shift. The PSWs inside the nursing station looking back at the RPNs, looking back at me and asking me what they should do. Mm-hmm. They were they were being coerced by management not to wear PPE at this time and they saw the nurses wearing PPE and they weren't right and and when you look at it like that like a tier system as well this is what we talk about how everyone's supposed to be working as a team everyone has their role to play and nobody should be seen on a different level but they were they felt it they felt that they were on a different level they felt like they were expendable and they felt like they weren't being given the right information Again, the, some of these PSWs had, had been working this job for 20 plus years and they knew what it was like when a, when a resident is coughing and hacking and yeah, you wear PPE or hmm. you're going to be exposed to bodily fluids, you wear PPE. Like these are the things that you're taught and that you're supposed to continue abiding by to protect yourself and the people you're working for. And they were being told the opposite. And now they're looking to us like, what do we do? Do we follow your suit against management? Is that going to risk our job? Are we going to lose shifts? Can we feed our family? Right? And then so shortly after the, the shortage happened, um, and I'll, I'll tell a quick story, but I had touched base with a company on Instagram who said that they were providing cloth, mask, PPE for, um, for medical staff who were running shortages. It was this company, Tough Duck, actually. I'll shout them out because they were amazing. Um, so this company called Tough Duck, I think they do mostly like construction-based equipment, hats and vests, um, and really heavy-duty um, construction-based 
attire and they were offering people, you know, you could reach out and tell them kind of what was going on in your facility and they might be able to send you some extra PPE, reusable PPE instead of this disposable paper stuff. Hmm. And I reached out to them and I was able to really quickly connect and they did actually send a box of reusable masks to our facility. Um, And that same director of care I thought that she would be elated, right? I thought she'd be like, oh, thank goodness. I can give everyone a mask. I got enough masks for every um, every staff on at least one shift. I think it was every staff on a day shift. And so she could give them out to the people who were full-time there the most and to try to like save some of this stuff. And she didn't want them. She didn't want the cloth masks. <laughs> and looking back, it's hilarious, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like after the mandates and everything. Um, it's so, so anyway, so all of that to say, looking back at that experience, it's like, wow, this system is completely manipulated by mm-hmm. whoever the powers that be are. It's not science. It's not logic. It's not any of that. It is completely manipulated by the higher ups, right? And And people who are going along with it, right? Like, it takes a lot of people to be compliant and just, and, you know, want to save their, keep it all going. If we had more people saying no, then, you know, it wouldn't happen in the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. And at the beginning, it was saying no to... To people yeah. wanting to wear masks. To wanting to wear them. Yeah. And now oh. it's the other way around, right? Okay. Um, All right. So so then you you left. Yeah. And and what did you do when you left? Yeah, so I left. Um, there was a few months off because we all went into lockdowns repeatedly, the two weeks on replay and replay and replay. And um, eventually I, I think by the summer I was able to reopen my childcare. And so I did that for the next year. And I fell pregnant again, and that would have been in 2021, is that right? Wow, time has really flown. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had my baby girl uh, in 2021. Yeah, is that right? (laughs) (laughs) The last three years have really... I've really meshed together. Um, so I did childcare for a while and then I had my next baby. And um, I was off with her um, for the majority of the year, of her first year. And then I did open childcare back up for a little while. And I just kind of told my husband, like, this is not what I want to be doing right now. Um, when I was pregnant with her in... Um, I guess it was 2021. When I was pregnant with her early on, I did a doula course with Wapio. She is Mm -hmm. director of the Matrona. She's absolutely a lovely, wise birth woman. And it was very eye-opening. I began to be driven, you know, through my own pregnancies and birth experiences to wanting to work in birth. And I think this links back to how I really enjoyed working in palliative care when I was within the nursing homes and 
there's this reverence that's held when you're working within the realms of life and death. Mm-hmm. And it is such fulfilling and deep work to walk in. Um, I was kind of the person at the nursing home that would actively seek to care for the people that were approaching end of life. Whereas you might see a lot of other staff more uncomfortable with that stage mm-hmm. and would rather kind of just do the bare minimum work, like give the meds, make sure they're comfortable. And that's just about it. I really enjoyed communicating with the families about the process that was happening and walking them through that and providing that support and physically being there for the people that were at their end of life. And so it's interesting to look back at that and now see how that same type of fulfillment and desire to work in that realm really does apply to birth work as well. It's a very, yeah, it's a very similar energy. I know a lot of birth doulas who then become death doulas. Um, And it's something that that fascinates me as well. And and I also do work in uh, past life regression meditation and and, uh, hypnosis. And it's like a similar space. It's kind of like you're in between worlds, like the veils are very thin. And some people are really afraid of that space. And I think other people are made to hold the ground and guide people through that through those spaces so that makes a lot of sense yeah and this kind of work it really forces you to get real and get present with the realities of of what this world is for us Mm. um you can't You can't walk that space in any kind of authentic way without being really truly present in your own body and with the energy that's around you. Um, It is almost like, you know, you drop all of the facade of what it is to be human in those moments because there's just too much power in it. You can't wear that mask of your regular day-to-day comings and goings and and also be authentic in that space. And it's, I think it's really hard for people to do that, to drop that mm-hmm. mask and really show up as like, as a soul rather than as their human selves. See, um, I, I, I feel like we almost come to like the truth of what it is to be human. Mm-hmm. And most people are, are wearing costumes just kind of layered onto us by culture and just where humanity is at in the world. But there's so much more potential to what being a human is. And I think those moments strip away all the unnecessary, like you're saying. Um, it just like kind of all melts off. That That's what makes it hard for me to be in the real world because I like to live in that space and I have a hard time with all the costumes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. You, yeah, you either have to find those ways where you don't have to be so theatrical but sometimes you do just to function in the society that's been formed around us Um, so how did your um, pregnancies and births inform where you're at now too I'd like to dive into into those a little bit so for my first pregnancy I 
was naive and I was already on what I would say at that time, the natural birth um, train. Um, I see that now as wanting a vaginal delivery. That's, and I did want a home birth. I did seek out midwives for my first pregnancy, but I really hadn't done much work about it. I had read a little bit um, and I, you know, I remember thinking like, I believe in my body. I believe in, I believe in my body and I believe in my baby and I can do this. It's no problem. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I, I obviously was not actually energetically in that space because what transpired was a complete <laughs> sabotage and, um, I just totally stepped into victimhood throughout the entire thing. I I did not hold um, a lot of autonomy throughout my pregnancy, throughout the testing that was offered to me, throughout the prenatal care. I really handed most of my power and decision-making over to the midwives that I was working with. And I I ended up experiencing a very invasive labor I have, I was diagnosed with um, preeclampsia, um, even though I was in labor, nobody really realized that I was already experiencing surges. So it, they kind of treated me as this preventative case that, um, yeah, they just kind of wanted to induce me, even though I was already in labor, nobody really thought about the logistics of that, I guess. And so with the induction, um, and the antibiotics and the blood pressure medication and, and everything really just interrupted the, you know, the physiological experience. And I ended up birthing in hospital. Um, and they, you know, I, was, I ended up getting an epidural. I can try, they wouldn't reduce the Pitocin. And I got to such a headspace where I couldn't even say words. I was like, I was so reeling in one contraction after the other in this foreign space completely against everything I thought that I was going to have um the midwives had dropped me that day that same day there was no preparation um for seeking alternative care and I was pretty much just abandoned at the hospital with a bunch of strangers who treated me like a number um I thought the midwives a lot of midwives would attend the women or be with the women in the hospital why did they drop you completely yeah you're right and and then so I'll, I'll rephrase they did not drop me completely they did not show up at any point um until after I was pushing so okay. they um had actually told me that they would follow me to the hospital um as I went through my management and they just never showed up until mm-hmm. I was already you know on narcotics and an epidural um and pushing my baby out completely in a zone of disconnection from my body um I remember so clearly you know my legs up in lithotomy position uh, you know with my legs around my head and everyone screaming at me to push it had been about three hours of pushing at this time spoiler alert that's not physiological if you're listening and I I believe he began to come out and I could feel the pressure, which I'm thankful for. I could feel the contractions. And even then I knew in my head, I'm like, I shouldn't be pushing. 
because I can feel when I actually have contractions and those feel like I need to be pushing. Yeah. But of course, they just coach you for hours and hours and hours on end to do something that your body is not prepared to do. And so I remember him starting to emerge and I just thought, I will never do this again. Like that's the thought that I was having was I will never do this again. And it was crushing for me. It was such a flood of emotions of, wow, this experience has absolutely crushed me. So you thought you would never give birth again? Was that like what what was crushing you or you would never do it that way again? No, I will never give birth again. Yeah, I I have like so many emotions coming up right now because I feel like so many women, so many women go through the exact same thing. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Like, if that's what you have to subject yourself to, mm-hmm. is the complete disrespect and disempowerment and just being stripped of all your humanity and dignity and really tortured. If that's what this is, if that's what birth is for me, then I will never do this again. Mm-hmm. So, And so, by contrast, I just want to offer this to women who are listening um, with my first, I, I delivered with midwives in a birthing center. Um, and I had, because my own birth with my mom was very traumatic for both of us, I was already dissolute, like, you know, turning away from the medical system. And there was no way in hell I was going to the hospital. Um, and after she was born, the rush of hormones I got was, this is so amazing. I want to do this again. And, and that's what, that's what birth can be when it's, it's fully supported and women are elevated and celebrated to be in their bodies. Like what you had was a chemical management of chemical mechanical management of your birth. Like they're literally trying to take over your body and your whole experience with medication um, and then telling you what you need to do. It's, it's like it's I've seen it happen because I do it a few births in hospitals and it's insane (laughs) it's 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 insane yeah we have become just almost unbelievably programmed to believe that this is what birth is like it and it takes so much work for most people to unravel that because this is just what you are fed Mm-hmm. from the moment that you emerge and, and you know unless you're coming from a situation where your parent has already stepped into their own yeah. power and autonomy so many people are birthed from fear and so then it's up to them to unravel this and um and yeah, so I told my husband right after them, like, I'm not not doing that ever again. We're never having children again. And I don't think he understood fully that it was the experience. It wasn't just having a baby because um, postpartum things were, were fine. I mean, lack of sleep is uh, almost inevitable, I think. And, you know, I experienced that pretty heavily. And so I had some probably postpartum resentment Um towards my husband because I was full-time breastfeeding and not sleeping and um, you know new baby first baby and so things weren't all rainbows and sunshine but I didn't experience anything that I would consider 
traumatic or deterring in my postpartum period. It was just the birth Mm. Um, and just feeling so completely stripped of my dignity and autonomy and, and just, yeah, birthing in such a fearful place. I, I wasn't able to tap into my own intuition and body at that time. I I had the feeling of intuition. I remember I remember sitting there in the bed, like they're monitoring my blood pressure, and I'm like, yeah, I get the numbers on the screen, but like that's not what I'm feeling. You know, mm. that's not that's not relevant to what I'm feeling right now. But I couldn't disconnect from those numbers on the screen and what was actually happening in my body with my baby. Um, yeah we're so obsessed with with numbers and tracking and they often just deter us from what's actually happening like it makes sense to have numbers and track but you have to mostly be present to what's happening and value the woman's experience of her her body her baby um, more than the numbers yes like I've seen and in, in hypnobirthing, I love hypnobirthing for that because they they really insist on women not being connected to the num to any numbers, time, um uh cervical dilation, you know, they they just suggest that women should not be into those numbers and and it makes a huge difference. I've seen women in birth looking at the clock because the doctors need the big red clock and in the hot in the birth room to see the time of birth but the woman is also then looking at the clock and mm-hmm. i've seen a woman be like why is my baby not here yet it's been so many hours blah 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 and i feel like if she had didn't have a clock if there was no one talking to her about time or anything she would have just been in the zone and birthed her baby there when you're in mm-hmm. labor there is no time when you're in that space it's kind of like the space of death there there is no time there just is there is the experience and there's not enough protection of that experience for the birthing woman. So yeah, it's interesting to hear you say you could see the blood pressure numbers, but you were like, but I know this is not what I'm feeling, but you're not yet enough connected to be able to tell everyone to just F off. You're fine. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And so I, I really view that entire experience as quite traumatic, despite having, you know, the vaginal delivery. Right. Right. Um, right. Then, <laughs> it's like that it was so far from right. anything natural and so going into my second I had taken that doula course that's kind of what precipitated taking that course um it was my de- desire to do things differently I didn't necessarily know if I would end up myself you know working within the birth realm it was more so for myself um and it was really like a divine thing because it was the pandemic my understanding is that it was the first time that Wapio had ever offered her courses online or if she had, it had been very far between most of her programs were in person and they were in the States usually, or I think maybe in Ottawa. Um, And she's magical. Like you picked out of all the people, (laughs) you really picked someone amazing. Like the goat, right? Yeah. yeah. Like she's wise. She's deep. She's, she gets it like it's mm-hmm. yeah because I see sometimes women who take doula courses from different areas different things and I'm like oh, okay no. <laughs> you know but you like you've you landed on the gold mine yeah and I don't know what it was I, I searched and searched and searched I remember having called so many um 
organizations and touching base with so many people must have been six like I must have touched base with at least six different um certifying doula programs Mm. and all of them were just like yeah that's not it that's no that's not it that's not what I'm looking for here that's not it and then I I sat with the well do I need accreditation issue do I want if I'm going to do a doula course and invest the time do I want to make sure it's a course that will then be able to be accredited by the Ontario Doula Association because only so many courses are and I had to sit with that for a little while because I come from a place of licensing or registration or licensure Mm -hmm. meaning a lot meaning you're someone to trust meaning you hold power meaning you're an authority that's that's why I originally went into nursing for those reasons. I felt like, yes, I want to be an authority in this and sitting with that. And I think that was also another pivotal moment of deciding I don't care if I can be accredited by this association. And I don't actually think I want to, even if I do choose a course that's compatible with their accreditation and so falling into Wapio's lap um, was a really happy accident in that she was offering it online at that time because of the pandemic, um, which made it accessible to myself. And I will be forever thankful for that, that serendipity. Um, and so I took that course and, and so I had a very similar plan of having my next baby um, you know, with midwives still. I chose a different... Um, midwifery office this time a different set of midwives and it was deeper and deeper into the pregnancy where I started really diving into a lot of the free birth society podcasts and content and so for a while I was thinking you know do I want free birth do I want to not really call my midwives and just have this baby at home and I talked to my husband about it and he really was not not on board with it mm-hmm. you know he was kind of like yeah I, I trust what you want to do and you know I want to be there for for everything that you want to do but I could just feel that it was not within the realm of comfortable for him whatsoever and I I, I know you hear these stories and I think you know <laughs> I've heard Emily say on her podcast so many times Emily Saldea you know it's not up to other people, right? Like it's it's not up to other people. You can tell everybody to go away and then just have your baby in a bathroom if that's what you want to do. Um, that really is did. true. That is true. But there's another layer of choosing to free birth with with a partner, mm-hmm. and then there's a, there's a different layer to birthing in a bathroom by yourself. Yeah. And you I know? didn't want to birth in a bathroom by myself. And not many women want to birth in the bathroom. So it's like if you have to choose to birth in a bathroom by yourself or to birth with midwives because then your husband is comfortable and that means he's there, like that is an insanely hard decision to make. And um, like I free birthed my son. I don't know if I would free birth by myself without my husband. I don't know. You know, like we're kind of just stuck without much choice at this no. moment in time in our culture. So, yeah, it's. Yeah, exactly. And I hadn't yet discovered this kind of in between of mm-hmm. people who call themselves birth keepers or traditional birth attendants or um, traditional authentic midwives, like these people that are walking the middle ground of 
holding some um holding themselves as as experts almost right in in birth or or as wise women in birth and holding space for the women who don't want to contract into the system but are also not not aligning with free birth like they do want women there with him or 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 someone there with them um i hadn't found that community at all yet and oftentimes it's it's they want someone there to support their husbands (laughs) (laughs) that's like a big part of it it's like they want the tba there to hold space for everyone else who's present and then the mother can just do her thing (laughs) and then she can be calm and released exactly exactly so i hadn't found that community yet and so i was stuck between this space of you know birthing alone essentially or having my husband there who might also bring a lot of fear that i didn't want yeah and and, and calling these midwives and um, I was really on the precipice of like I, I had hired a doula at the time um, she's a lovely girl but we didn't have a lot of um, we didn't get the chance to connect very much it was still pandemic times you know she had shown up in a mask and um, and I, I get why she did that but at the time I'm like oh, I don't like this and because she knew that I was also doing doula work at that time. Um, I don't feel like she felt like she had a lot to offer me. Um, She is somebody who's accredited and very much in that system. And so, you know, she like kind of showed up with her birth book, ready to give me prenatal education. And what I really wanted was a woman to like, ask me about my fears and, you know, pour a cup of tea and, and sit with me and really, you know, go deeper than like, here's the prenatal education. So, mm-hmm. um, and I don't, I don't think I really realized that at the time, but I do now. And so I had told her, Hey, I might not call my midwives. Are you okay with that? And she was like, yeah, I'm okay with that. What kind of role do you want me to play? And I was like, well, I just want you to be my doula. And you know, if something goes awry, then you can be the one to call emergency services if that's what it comes down to. Um, and that's pretty much it. And so I had planned to be at home, probably by myself. And then my baby flipped breech at just over 38 weeks. Mm. Um, I felt it happen. And I was like, oh, shit. Um, you know, one more tear of like fear to break through. And I tried a lot of things. I tried a lot of things. I paid for spinning babies programs. I went and got an ECV attempted, which was unsuccessful. That's where a medical professional will attempt to turn your baby externally. They'll put their hands on your tummy and try to turn them. I tried moxibustion and acupuncture. And I, I, I was 38 and a half weeks at this point, right? So I did all of this within like six days mm-hmm. I did everything I threw everything at it um and baby wouldn't flip and I remember sitting in the bathtub and just like crying over my belly begging the baby to flip putting my hands on my tummy begging begging her to flip and, and she wasn't so no one is telling you that that could be okay and that they will support you in that right so exactly immediately my midwife said well we can't support that mm-hmm. You know, we've been with you this whole time and, and now we can't support that. We can't, I can't show, I had seen, the, the, so it was a team of, I believe, four midwives. Um, 
but I had only seen one the entire time. And so it felt very personal. It felt more like what you'd get in the US where you might hire one midwife and you see them throughout the whole time where usually here you hire a team and you're supposed to rotate through all of them at your prenatal appointments. Um, But because of different sicknesses and time off and the way the appointments were lined up, I kept seeing the same midwife, which was really nice. I really liked her. And we did align a lot more on physiological birth, but she was not completely disillusioned from that. She still held on to, well, I had said, I don't want any monitoring in active labor. So I'm going to show you, I'm going to call you probably last minute and I don't want you to come near me unless I ask you to. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like, well, I can't really do that. I kind of have to, you know, I kind of have to like ask you. And I'm like, no, I don't. I'm telling you, I don't want you to interrupt mm-hmm. my birth. Like, can you do that? Can you document? Are you, you know, able to document? Refused, refused, refused. And and please don't bother me. Well, what can we compromise on? What can we compromise on? You know, what can I, can we push it a little longer? Can I do every 30 minutes instead of every 15 minutes? No, no, like, I don't want you to touch me. Right. And so even the people who recognize that the fetal monitoring doesn't tell you very much, if anything at all. And, and that, is interrupt like and, and it's, it's harmful and it's interrupting <laughs> yeah but you know that and yet you still will do it anyways because that's what they have to do in order to maintain their licensure so we aligned but didn't align and so she said you know I and she did at one point say to me I don't know if I should say this on the podcast. I don't want to get anyone in trouble. No, I think it's fine. She did say to me at one point, you know, if your labor happens so fast and I'm on call and you need to call me because it's happening too fast to get to a hospital, I will come to your birth. Of course I will. Oh, for the, even with a breech baby. With a breech baby, Hmm. right? So she had said that, which was very nice Hmm. because the other midwives said they would not come at all. Hmm. Or what ended up happening was that I went into labor. I was like 41 in a few days and I went into labor and it was so fast. I like, I immediately had minutes apart contractions, full force. There was no lead up and So I called the midwife center and the midwife I had been seeing was not on call. It was a different one. I never met her, never spoken to her. She was so fearful on the phone. She was like, oh yeah, this is the one with the breach, right? Um, She said, no. I said, I don't know if I can get to hospital. She said, I think you need to try because if I have to come to you, I will have to call EMS before I even show up. Yeah. So she was going to call for an ambulance before she even came to assess me. Mm-hmm. And I can backtrack a little bit. The hospital, <clears throat> a few cities over, about 45 minutes away, I did actually meet with an OB around 39 weeks. And he said that he does work with breach delivery and that he would work with me um, because I met his indicators. Um 
and allow my midwives to also be there for continuity of care. And so it seemed very nice. But he also said that in about a week, he was going on vacation Mm -hmm. and that he would be away for a few days. And so if I happened to go into labor when he was on vacation, well, then I have to go to my local hospital. And lo and behold, I went into labor when he was on vacation. That midwife called the hospital to see if he was available. No, he was up at the cottage. So (laughs) it was just, it was one of those things where it's just stacked against you, right? And so I had to sit with, am I going to not go to the hospital and and have this breech baby here at home? I just wasn't prepared for that. Hmm. So we packed up. I was in labor for about an hour before we packed up, went to the hospital. Um, yeah, those contractions had started at eight o'clock. We were at the hospital by nine, nine thirty, and admitted. Um, there's a whole story with admission. I actually told more of this story on another podcast, so I won't repeat myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but the staff it's, all, it's also on your hospital. Instagram page. I think you you did yeah, a reel about the story. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so I ended up opting into a C-section for this delivery. So the difference, right, and which is not something I ever would have thought mm-hmm. I would have um, opted into, but because of the situation I was in and the staff being so fearful, I was, I was truly concerned that they would harm or kill my baby or myself because of their incompetence. And so I opted into a C-section knowing that they were more confident in performing surgery than they were delivering a breech baby, which mm-hmm. is just bananas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so and I think the difference between those two experiences, I do see that as traumatic because it was major surgery, something I never wanted for myself. But I was still very much in my own power and I very much chose that surgery like that's the difference between having that experience and the other one you also were like more aware and more in reality right so you didn't have any false expectations like you weren't like okay let's just try this breach delivery with all you people who are you know pooping their pants over it (laughs) yeah like you weren't disillusioned you just knew Um, and, yeah. and so you took all of that information in and then made the decision that felt best to you. And yes, and yeah. that's the difference. And that's where I'm sitting now is knowing that even if something comes up in pregnancy and birth and postpartum, that is so far from what a woman thought she was going to experience. The difference in how she navigates that and yeah. feels about it is going to be the difference between a traumatic experience and and just an experience that was you know maybe unfavorable but not necessarily sitting in her body as trauma and that comes when you're able to make aligned decisions step into a place of your decisions are coming from an intrinsic place and you know you may be given choices that are not the choices that you want. But the fact that you are still able to make that choice is what's going to make sure that you're not walking away from an experience with trauma. Um, ideally, right? And things do still happen to people. But when you can see it as, yes, I made those choices in, a much, in as much alignment as I can, then you're less likely to walk away um, 
feeling really traumatized. And so I, I, I had a better birth experience with my C-section than I did mm. with my vaginal delivery. Um, so that's where I'm at right now is that I recognize that such a big percentage of women, even the ones that are seeking care, you know, mostly outside of the system that are hiring birth keepers and traditional birth attendants, there's still a chance that they're going to opt into seeking some kind of care within our allopathic system, whether that's just going for blood work for themselves and needing to see a lab technician, whether that's, you know, going and seeing your chiropractor who's holding a license, you know, many women seek chiropractic care or massage therapy and, and all of these touch points are an opportunity for you to make sure that you're making decisions that are aligned for you and stepping into a place of autonomy. And so when you can do that, your experience in pregnancy and birth and postpartum will feel like you, you know, you were the one driving the car. Like you're not going to feel like you were railroaded at any point because you're calling the shots. So that's where my education for women is lying right now is that I want to support women who are going to be opting into the system in some kind of way, even if that's not their initial intention. Um, and making sure that they're in a place where they can navigate that system in confidence with the knowledge that they need and in a way that is really in alignment for them so that they can navigate that system and come out the other end feeling like they got the care they needed and they weren't traumatized. Yeah. Like I'd love to ask you about informed consent. Um, Because one, one thing I see is that, um, I mean, uh, something that's that's absolutely true is that people are not getting full information, right? So they're not making informed consent. And what I've seen is women say, "I'm informed and I'm 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 making my decisions." Um, but what what we have to realize is that almost all doctors, midwives, um, people in the medical field are not give. They themselves don't have all the information. They're not doing deep work to get deeper information. And then they're not giving extra information to, um, to their patients. They're just not, you know, when you're offered an epidural, when you come, when women come into the hospital, they don't say what side effects, possible side effects there are. I think it might be in the form. Like I know that women are signing forms and they're, but they're signing basically like just signing over everything that the doctors do um, in hospital, but no one's saying like, here's what's in the epidural. Here's, here are possible side effects. Here's what it's doing to your baby. Your baby is receiving um, medication, narcotics. Um, and I don't, I find that, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear what you think about this idea of, of informed consent and how women can prepare. Cause yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, you know, the, the surface level idea of informed consent versus, you know, on the other end would be, um, you know, we have explicit consent or implied consent, right? 
And so I think a lot of people think that when they opt into seeking some kind of medical care, whether that's a midwife or, like I said, a chiropractor or going to a hospital or seeing an OB, they think that because they're opting into that system, a lot of their consent is applied or implied that they are giving a certain amount of autonomy over to this professional because they've opted into the system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm seeing an obstetrician, so therefore I have to consent to the things that the ob- obstetrician is suggesting, or I have to make decisions based off of only what the obstetrician is telling me that I have to abide by whatever kind of, you know, policies, procedures, and, and, and things that they're telling me I have to abide by. And this is untrue. You actually get to make the decision that you are only giving explicit consent for every single procedure that you are going to opt into testing, you know, physical procedures, um, any of it. And so the only way that's going to happen, the only way medical staff are going to see you as somebody who is there in autonomy, making explicit consent for themselves and being viewed that way is somebody who's actually willing to step into that role when they step into the system, Mm. that they're not stepping into a role of passive passivity or victimization, that you're stepping into the system, stepping into seeking that care in a way that shows that you are an active participant in your care. And so we have this idea, like this is what I'm I'm going to be launching in the spring is this, I don't have a working title for it, but it's the difference between showing up to the hospital or having your midwives in your home, showing up with a birth plan versus showing up with a care plan, okay? A birth plan is something that you have manufactured in an attempt to tell the people that are supporting you what your wishes are. Right? And they can be written so pretty and cute and easy to understand with cute little pictures and one page so it's not too much for the staff to handle. And immediately what you are doing is stepping into a role of passive partnership. You have now put those people on a tier above yourself, telling them that you are willing to give whatever kind of consent you need to for them to be able to do their job. Right? Yeah. You're, you're kind of saying like, here's a list of the things I'd like and I'm giving it to you and now it's in your hands and let's just hope this goes okay. Yeah. And if yeah. it doesn't, well, that's totally fine too. Right. Yeah. Just do your best. This is like what I would like, but yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the difference in what I've realized is that's not how you know, especially medical personnel work. Um, you know, there's a lot of detail to this, but essentially they work by contract, right? You're, when you opt into a system, any system, you're going to have a file. And then within that file 
are all the documents that make up the care that you will receive from those people. And they are essentially documents of contracts, power of attorney contracts, um, you know, uh, the, the documents that you've signed consent for, those contracts, it's all contracts to tell the staff what they are and, una- and are not able to do to you or with you. And the birth plan that most people present is not presented as a contract. It's presented as a list of wishes. So what you actually want to show up with is a care plan. A care plan is a document that is a contract telling the staff what you will and will not consent to. And more importantly, your consent is an ongoing, explicit process. That's, that's the main overriding focus is that the people that you are contracting into care with need to know that they will have to continuously obtain consent from you in a very informed and explicit way. It's not, you know, here's this perceived emergency situation. We have to take your baby to the warmer. Mm-hmm. We have to cut the cord now. We have to start you on this drug. You know, this is how many things are presented because people are showing up in a way that's not, um, you know, they're not showing up in their power. They're showing up as a, as a patient. So this is, this is the premise of my whole course is that it's, you know, uh, an idea about what is consent? What are your patient rights? Because this is a big thing that people don't consider. You actually have rights as somebody who is a patient. When you seek care from any licensed medical professional, you are now considered a patient, even if you are not sick. And so what are those patient rights? Mm-hmm. And if you don't know your patient rights... How will you know when you're able to say no? How will you know when you're able to seek more information? Because like you mentioned, yes, we can be informed by our, by our medical staff, by the people that we're seeking care with, but that might not be all the information we want or need. Right. So it's also within your right to seek more information to actually make an informed consensual decision right that's yeah i have shivers and i feel like now i have so many more questions but i think that all of them will be answered in your upcoming course which this is making me very excited for um because i in in i took a doula course as well and in in other like birth work stuff it's kind of just said you know if you tell them i do not consent then legally they can't do the things and you know it and it ends at that but what i've seen happen in real life is that that doesn't always work um that's not how things play out and even for every single little procedure um there's so much more nuance and so i could see how more information a course that kind of teaches people you know all the details and the whole story would be necessary uh so i'm very excited about it and uh i think this is something that will be useful especially even for parents um you know with our children as we might have to navigate um the the hospital system um to just be 
you know, really well equipped, knowing our rights, knowing the language we have to use and knowing how to use the allopathic system, you know, for the good it can, it can provide um, and knowing how to protect ourselves from things we don't want. So I think this is, yeah, really, really beautiful work. Thank you. And that's, and that's it, right? I mean, I had, I think I had gone so far in one direction, like I was so ingrained in working in allopathy and so committed to it. And then leaving that behind in such a forceful way that I went to the other spectrum of, I will never see a doctor again in my life. Right? Like that's, I think that's the mentality I had for a little while was like, no way will I ever contract in this kind of situation again. And that's simply not my reality. There are women out there who are absolutely comfortable virtually never seeking or outsourcing healthcare, which is totally valid. And then there's the majority of people, of women, who for either themselves or their families will seek healthcare outside of their own home. And that is also completely valid. And so if you're going to do that, you have the right to be equipped with all of this information so you can navigate it in a way that's going to stay true to you and your values and serving your family in the way that you need it to. Um, I really do see the system now as a tool that you can have in your toolkit. You can be somebody who, you know, really enjoys using homeopathy and has a lot of alternative health practices. And then sometimes you might also use the allopathic system as a tool in your toolkit. You will know when you have to outsource and you'll feel confident doing so because, because you have the education of how the system works and how you can navigate it. And I think it's really important. It's something that we're not, we're really not given, given the tools to do. And so you either do feel like it's this, well, I have to go in there and just comply with whatever they tell me because I'm the one, you know, walking in the doors or I just, I just can't use it at all because I know that I'm going to feel, you know, railroaded by it and then I'm not going to align with my values there. I think there is a happy medium that we can meet when we have the right education to do it. Yeah. Great. All right. I can hear your monkeys kind of waking up and and my monkeys, I think my, my little Theo seven months is also, you know, my husband just brought him over with these big eyes. Just (laughs) (laughs) we got about an hour and 15 before the children ran in. Yeah. But I think this was perfect. I think that um, this is a great segue to the course that you're offering and we will let people find you and get more of the juicy information from you um, in their own time. So thank you so much for, for being with us today, Sandra. So glad to do this. Thank you so much for having me, Emily, and keep on doing what you're doing. We need all these different voices being heard and presented. It's, it's really important work that you're doing. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to connect with Sandra, you can reach out to her on Instagram. Her handle is at maternal intuition or go to her website, nursedoulabirthkeeper.com. There you can join her email list and receive a free preview for her 
course and also a discount. The course will be called Birth Autonomy Within the Medical System and it is set to launch this March. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you to all of those who are sharing reviews and comments uh, with me on Instagram or also directly on your uh, platform, the platform where you're listening to the podcast. This keeps me motivated to keep sharing uh, more episodes such as this. I have some really interesting uh, women lined up to come on and share their stories. And so hopefully they will be coming out once a week. Um, but I do my best as I navigate motherhood and all the things while doing this. So thank you for being here today. I wish you the most beautiful day.